This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. If you were here last week, we did chapter 18, the entire chapter. We're not going to get that far today uh, with the entire chapter of 19, but last week we uh, saw that after spending a year and a half in the city of Corinth, if you looked at the nation of Greece as it goes from north to south, Macedonia is at the top, Achaia is the region at the south. Paul was all the way down, left Athens, went down to the south, and, and spent a year and a half in Corinth. Of course, establishing a church there that he would write three letters to, two of them we have in our New Testaments. Uh, and he left from Corinth, boarded a ship with uh, two people that he met there, Aquila and Priscilla. They were a husband-wife team. They, uh, they saw their uh, tent-making ability, that's what they were in their trade, how they made their money, made their living, but they saw their living, their career as an opportunity to be missionaries wherever God placed them. And they moved around to different places, and, and they traveled, and they left with Paul, um, went to uh, across the Aegean Sea to Asia Minor. There they uh, spent a little bit of time in the city of Ephesus, meeting in the city, in the synagogue there in Ephesus. And you remember, if you were here last week, uh, Paul spent time with them talking to the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah, explaining who he was from the Old Testament. And they said, would you please, if you have to leave, would you please come back? And remember what Paul's response, if you were here last week, what did Paul say to them? You don't remember. All right. Is anybody here last week? What did Paul say? I'll come back if, if it's the will of God. If God wills, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. Well, he's going to come back. In this chapter, we're going to see him come back to Ephesus. Uh, but he promised that if that was the Lord's will, he will. From there, he went, he went first to Jerusalem, to, to like the mother church, if you will, went there and gave a report. And then he went up to Antioch in Syria to his home church. And without a lot of fanfare in the verses in chapter 18, Paul begins his third missionary journey going to the interior of Asia Minor to the region of Galatia. And he would write later a letter uh, to the Galatian churches that's there in our New Testament. And then he got his desire to come back to Ephesus. God granted him uh, that. So he goes to Ephesus. Ephesus is the home of the temple of Artemis. Artemis, uh, the, the Roman name for, the, for that god was Diana. We have a couple pictures of uh, what the temple looked like. Uh, that's what it looks like today, the ruins. And then here's kind of an artist's uh, idea of what it might have resembled. Those columns are 60 feet high, six stories high. It's a huge, uh, massive building. And it was the center of worship for that, that, uh, that pagan goddess, Artemis. Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple, according to the ruins that we have, they've measured everything and found that it was 239 feet wide, 418 feet long, four times the size of the, uh, the Parthenon, the great temple in, up on the hill in, in Athens. It was humongous. It, it was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thank you, Tricia. Um, it was the, Ephesus was the capital of the, Ro- of the Asian province uh, there, the Roman Asian province. It was, and as the capital city, it was a major city, major commercial city in the city where religion was very important, commerce, prosperity, politics, 
Sounds like America in a lot of ways, all significant part of the Ephesian culture. And Paul gets to back to that city. Um, without giving us any details, Luke tells us how right away he came upon some disciples who were not men young in their faith. They've been believers for a while because they've been believers since the time of John the Baptist. So it's been a number of years since these guys first became believers in Jesus, but yet at the same time, they had not been taught uh, about Christ or, and about the Holy Spirit especially. Look with me in verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Apollos was that eloquent preacher that was like these guys we're going to read about, and, and, uh, and Aquila and Priscilla sat him down at dinner one night after hearing him teach in the synagogue and told him about the rest of Jesus' life and ministry. And he caught on, and he was a very eloquent, able teacher and preacher. He stayed behind in Corinth to help build the church there. Paul traveled through the interior regions. He left Galatia, and he came to the seacoast town of Ephesus. And he found some disciples. Here are these men. It doesn't say how he found them, maybe in the marketplace, maybe in the synagogue. We don't know. But these guys are disciples, and he asked them this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? when you believed? Well, no, they told him. We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Now, you know there's a Holy Spirit. We just sang about the fact that we believe in the Holy Spirit. They did not know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That would happen after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and then 50 days later, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon the church and is with the church now consistently, constantly, all the time for 2,000 years, but they did not know he had arrived. Then Paul's asked them the question, well, then what baptism were you baptized with? Because when you're baptized as a Christian, Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, how were you baptized? If you don't know about the Holy Spirit, what baptism did you receive? And their answer was very simply with John's baptism. This is John the Baptist, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. He's saying there's a difference between the baptism John did and post-Christ Christian baptism. There's a difference. He baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people, the Jewish people, that they should believe in the one who would come after him. That's Jesus, but Jesus has already come. So Christian baptism is different because it's looking back to Jesus, not looking ahead to Jesus. And when they heard this, evidently, you read between the lines, it's real simple because it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they heard this, they said, oh, okay, now it's beginning to all make sense. It's all coming together. And they accepted what, what, what Paul told them. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. Now, there were about 12 men in all. Point number one uh, in your notes is this. It is important that we understand our new life. Here were 12 disciples. They've been Christians for years. Longer than Paul, they've been believers. But they did not realize who the Holy Spirit was, that he had come to stay and be in them and to empower them. But yet they were believers. It was, it's important that we understand. Their grasp of the new life they had in Christ was incomplete. And Paul's going to say, let me tell you the rest of the story. Here's the deal. Jot this down in your notes. You don't have to be a Bible know-it-all. 
before you put your faith in Christ. And I've heard people say, well, yeah, I just don't know enough about the Bible to believe in Jesus. You don't have to know anything about the Bible. All you have to know is that you've sinned against God Almighty, and God Almighty says, I'm going to do something for you about that. And he sent his son Jesus to come down here because he loves us, and he died on the cross, and he, and he rose again from the dead, and now he's ascended to be with God on high, and he wants to be your Savior if you'll put your faith in him. Isn't that simple? You don't have to know anything else at all. You don't have to. And I know people that have trust, trusted in Christ, and they say, well, I never grew up in church. I don't know anything about this. I've never read a page in the Bible. But you share the gospel with them, and they say, that's what I need. And they believe in Jesus. You don't have to know it all. In fact, it's just the opposite. Some, as I said, might come to Christ without any knowledge of the Bible or theology and and there's nothing wrong with that because you don't have to have, if you come to, here's the deal, if you come to Christ without any previous church background or religious background, you don't come to Christ with a lot of preconceived ideas. You don't come to Christ with a whole lot of confused mess. You just come to him and, and accept him just as he is, as he's explained and taught in the scriptures. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus said that becoming a Christian, he, he compared it to an act of childlike faith. You know, children don't understand a whole lot, but you know, little kids can put their faith and trust in Christ when you explain to them why he came and who he is. Childlike faith. Buddy, I'm looking at you sitting here. You've, got, you've had the opportunity to baptize a couple of your kids, right? At least one of them. One so far, and the rest of them are going to fall in line, I know, because they're being raised in a Christian environment. But, you know, they're come, childlike faith means simple faith, doesn't it? It means simple, not complicated. And Jesus said that's what it's about. And then, however, here's, here's what happens from that point on. Once you become one of his, by faith in Jesus, here's the expectation. The expectation is that you will, listen up, you'll learn and grow. That's the expectation. You're going to learn, you're going to grow. These 12 men are called by Luke the word disciples. And I've been talking about that for several weeks now. Disciples means learners. They are learners. They are they are seeking, they're believers first, but they obviously have that teachable spirit. They want to learn, they want to grow, they want to follow. But somehow, like Apollos, the teaching that they had was limited to what John the Baptist had revealed in his ministry. They probably, maybe they were there to hear John the Baptist preach, and they believed in the, as John said, look, here comes the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. And they said, and here, came, here comes Jesus, and he's baptized by John. And they said, we believe he's the Son of God. But then maybe they left the country and haven't been back and did not know all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught and about the crucifixion and so forth. They've been baptized as a sign of, by John as a sign for their readiness for the coming of the Messiah, but knew nothing of Christian baptism. By the way, what is Christian baptism? Let me just throw some bullet points out at you. Because you may be here today and you might be someone who has believed in Jesus but you've yet to follow him in believers' baptism. Baptism, first of all, is a command from Jesus. He told his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. It's a command from Jesus for all who believe in him. Secondly, baptism is the first step of being a disciple after we believe. Again, go into all the world, make disciples. What, how do we do that? You baptize them. That's the first step of discipleship. And we see that pattern throughout the book of Acts. People believed and were baptized. Baptism, thirdly, is our public confession or profession. 
of our faith in Jesus. Baptism is not a secret thing. It's not a private thing. It's something we do. It might be here in this building. It might be out at the ocean, but we invite everybody to come and watch. It's a, pub, it's a public way of saying, I have decided that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and now he is my Savior, and I want to follow him. I want to live for him in my life. It's our public profession. Baptism pictures the gospel's effect on our lives. Romans chapter 6 says it's a picture of his death and his burial and his resurrection, resurrected, uh, risen to walk in newness of life. It also pictures the work of the Holy Spirit as he places us into the body of Christ. Now, if you are one of those people that you're here today, and, and maybe especially if you live here, you're you believe and you're ready to follow that belief with baptism, I want you to grab a communication card, and on the back of it, you can just check off that box that says, I'm ready to be baptized. Give us the information of who you are in the front, give that card to us, and uh, our next baptism, we'll be sure to include you and talk with you about that. These 12 men, they had never heard any of this. They didn't know about Christian baptism. They didn't know the Great Commission. They had not heard the stories of, of Peter and the stories of, of uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and they, had not, they didn't know those things. But when they heard it, they accepted it. And so they're baptized in water, just like most of us here have been. And as we've seen before with some in the New Testament, not all converts in the book of Acts, but some, God showed them the Holy Spirit that they said we'd never heard of. God said, he, let me show you that he's really there in you. He came to them and gave them supernatural sign gifts in the presence of one of the apostles. And that happened often. After Pentecost, it happened in Samaria, it happened in the first Gentile conversions, Cornelius. God did this. It wasn't the norm. You can read much more that it did not seem to happen, but it seems to be the exception. Somehow it's related to the expansion of the gospel as the gospel goes out into all these parts of the world, new places, under the, under the ministry of the apostles. So how do I know if the Holy Spirit is in me? Do I have to speak in a language I've never learned? I would like to be able to do that, by the way, especially if I go to another country. You know, so where's Ben? Ben, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have known the language of the people in India when you went there a couple months ago? That would have been great. You'd have been a valuable asset to them if you'd have said to Steve, hey, Steve, you know what? I've never studied this before, but watch this and open your mouth and suddenly you're speaking whatever their language is. That would have been cool beans. Didn't happen, though. But the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. How do you know? Let me give you some reasons why Ben knows the Holy Spirit lives inside of him. All right, number one, it's because he indwells me. He lives in, how do you know that? Because Jesus said that he would. John chapter 7, John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit would come and make his dwelling in you. And the Greek word there means he's going to pitch his tent in you and he will never pull up the stakes. He indwells you. Paul would write to the Ephesians in chapter 1 that he seals me until the day I arrive in heaven. How many of you remember mail? Just good old-fashioned mail. You know, you open, take an envelope, you stick something in it, you lick that little glue that's at the top, and you hopefully you don't get it, cut your tongue. You lick that, you know, and you close it, and you rub it, and it's sealed. And you hope that it doesn't get open until it arrives in its destination, all right? That was the purpose of sealing. So the mailman doesn't open it up and peek inside and see what's there. You know, it's sealed not to be open until it arrives in its destination. Paul says, we, you and I who know Jesus have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He says, until the day of redemption, until we arrive at our ultimate final destination of heaven. Then Jesus gets to open the envelope 
All right, so that's what Paul says. We are sealed by the Spirit. He places us or baptizes me into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. How do I become a part of this family of believers? The Holy Spirit does that. Do I feel that? Do I know it's happening? Does he whisper in my ear and say, guess what, now you're part? No, it's just something that he does. It's automatic. He gives me special abilities to serve the church in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. We call those spiritual gifts. Some of you have been using your giftedness this morning in ministry all over this campus. You've been doing a lot of different things, serving and encouraging and, and, and so forth, giving. That's the Holy Spirit's ability inside of you that he's given you to serve the church. He produces fruit in my life when I'm surrendered to him. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you're living in the Spirit and the power, and you're surrendered to the Spirit of God. He says, these things are going to show up in your life. And he gives a list of all these things, love, joy, peace. And he has this great big list, and he says, that's what pops up in your life when the Spirit is inside. You'll love people that are unlovely. Just look around. Right? You'll love people that are unlovely, people that are hard to love. You'll love them. There will be joy in your life when you're going through circumstances that ought to produce anger or bitterness, and you'll find some, some, oh, somehow I'm, I'm dealing with this, and, and I've got the joy of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit working inside of you, producing that fruit. Then he sets you and me apart from sin as God's child. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. That's that idea of setting apart. I talked a few weeks ago about Gail's crystal stemware. I have to search real hard. I just want to say glasses. But, you know, and, and how they're set apart with only for special occasions. God takes us who are Christians and he sanctifies us. That means he sets us apart. He makes us holy for his use for his purposes, and that's his work in you and me. And when you get time sometime, maybe today, later on today, go sit down and look up those verses. And, and, and all this and more is the Holy Spirit's activity in us if we're growing in Christ. When we're not growing, the Bible says, here's what happens. When I'm not growing and I do things that don't please God, I have this impact on the Holy Spirit. This is not your notes, but you can jot these things down. I grieve him. And I quench him, all right? I grieve him. I, all of us who are parents know what it means to grieve when our children make bad decisions, don't we? You know what that's about? It breaks your heart. The Bible says we break the heart of the Holy Spirit when we make choices and decisions, when we go places, when we think we're the worldview that does not honor him. We grieve him, it tells us. We grieve him by the things we do, sins of commission. We quench him, like you quench a fire, you put him out, all right? We stop, as it were, his work in our lives by sin as well. Quenching is different from grieving, by the way. We quench him how? Not by the things we do. We quench him by not doing the things that we ought to do. That quenches the Holy Spirit, sins of omission. All right, so we have an impact, and, and really how much the Spirit works in you and me is up to me. It's up to you, how much of ourselves we give over to him. Uh, as the bumper sticker said, I remember bumper stickers. It seems like back in the 70s and 80s, bumper stickers had their heyday, although I see a lot of them today, and I really can't repeat what many of them say. 
But this bumper sticker said this, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, lives, he's not going anywhere. So if I feel far from God, he hasn't left, guess who's moving away from him? Trying to get away anyway. It's me. It's me. So what do growing disciples do? In your notes, growing disciples get the word out. Get the word out. Verse 8. Then he entered the synagogue. He's in Ephesus. Enters the synagogue. Speaks boldly over a period of three months. I take that to mean every Sabbath for three months. Thirteen weeks. He's speaking in the Sabbath day. These are the people that said, please come back. So he's come back. Engaging in discussion, trying to persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God, about Jesus. When some of them became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowds. The the way, by the way, is one of the the first church's ways, uh, uh, phrases to describe themselves, uh, Christianity. The way comes from Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth. When they were slandering the way, belittling Paul's message, their hearts were hardened. He, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, with those who had believed. Pulled them out, met separately with them, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years. Two years. They met every day for two years so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. First of all, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. What was that? That was, that was some kind of a building, an auditorium, a, a room, where this fellow Tyrannus had this lecture hall. Maybe he was probably a philosopher of some kind. One ancient Greek manuscript adds that the school was available from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Why was it available then? Tyrannus would teach, stop at 11 a.m. to go eat lunch, and they would not, then not come back until 4, because in that culture, as in some cultures even in this part of the world, it's siesta time, you know? You know, there's a reason. How many of you, you know, I mean, after lunch, man, you have a hard time focusing on anything because you want to take a nap. I should have been a Mexican and done the siesta thing, you know? That's me. Well, they had the siesta time from 11 to 4, when most people were gone. So probably this is when Paul and his disciples stepped in and used this building. The rest of the day, before 11, and in the evening, Paul would have worked with his own hands. Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And then that last verse says this, all the inhabitants of Asia. Now, when you and I think of Asia... We think of China and India and Korea and Japan and Southeast Asia and India. I mean, we think of half of the world. Asia here is not half of the world. Let me show you a map of where Asia was. There's a map, and for those of you who are geographically challenged, all the uh, the, the nations, the areas shaded in yellow, southern Europe goes all the way up to the British Isles, Then you come down, you have the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain today and Portugal, and then North Africa, and over here up the Middle East, as far to the east as as Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan to the north, Syria, and so forth. And then the Asia Minor Peninsula, where modern-day Turkey is, and that's where the red is. That red section was the Roman province of Asia. So it says 
all of the inhabitants of Asia, that's a pretty big spot on the map, by the way, heard the message of Christ. All of the people, Luke said, everybody heard the gospel. Thank you, Tricia. And it was during this time that the churches at Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis that were mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, when they were founded. Paul would stay in the city of Ephesus for a total of 27 months. How would you like to have access for two years and three months to have go every day and sit and listen to the Apostle Paul teach the Bible? I sure would. Good night. That would be amazing. But here he is for these three months, these 13 weeks in the synagogue, and, and they start criticizing and mocking and making fun. And the point here is that when you stick to the truth, some are going to oppose it and ruin it for the rest. When you stick to the truth, not everybody's going to want to hear the truth. And so he left the synagogue. They likely rented this lecture hall from Tyrannus where he led these discussions every day for two years with the disciples in Ephesus. Here Paul establishes the very first Bible college, the very first seminary, if you will, right there. Every day, go to class with the Apostle Paul. And that's an awesome thing. Go to learn from the Apostle Paul because disciples are learners. And there couldn't have been a better school than Paul's, but here's the deal. Learning about Christ and the Bible and theology and being able to say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, crucifixion, resurrection, coming back again. Uh, being able to know those facts is wonderful, but it's not, being a disciple is not about accumulating a brain full of facts. My grandfather, my mother's side, was born and raised in a preacher's home. He was born in a little parsonage next to a little United Methodist, well, it wasn't United Methodist back then, it was called Methodist Episcopal Church in Parnassus, Virginia. How many of you know where Parnassus, Virginia is? Not Manassas, Parnassus. Some, how many of Virginians today? Raise your hand. And you have no clue where Parnassus is. It's a little tiny spot. It's in the Shenandoah Valley, not far from uh, Lexington, not far from that area of the state. We, my family never, I would ask my grandpa, Grandpa, where's Parnassus? He'd say, all I know is it's somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley. He didn't even know. My family, we're on a vacation out in that part of the states near Stanton. We're out there and one day, and I had a map, and I said, look, there's Parnassus. So we drove to Parnassus and found a little house where my grandfather was born in 1908, right next to the church, the Methodist church where his dad was the pastor. Went inside, and they had this plaque on the wall with the names of all their pastors for many years, and there was my great-grandfather's name, 1906 to 1908. He was the pastor of that church and about three others in that area. He was a circuit rider. He had a mule, and he would ride around to the different churches in the area. My grandfather grew up in a preacher's home. But my grandfather, my mom would say, I remember my mom telling me when I was a little boy, that, that my grandfather knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He died about maybe 20 years ago, so I knew him up into my adult years. And we took our kids to see him in his last years and visited him in the old folks' home. And I remember going to see him in the old folks' home with my kids, and they were probably, I don't know, maybe not quite teenagers yet. And, uh, and, and Grandpa sat there, and, and, and he, he would start, he wanted to sing some hymns. 
So he'd sing these old hymns that, you know, we knew, and we'd sang them with him, and it was pretty neat. It was surprising to, him, to me because I never knew my grandfather to sing a hymn. I was surprised by it all. Why? Because my grandfather, in all the years that I knew him, probably 30-plus years, that I knew him in my life, my grandfather never exhibited the character of a disciple. Never. He might have gone to church on Easter, but that was maybe it as far as I knew. He smoked big cigars, drank liquor, and his vocabulary was seasoned with cursing. And don't get me wrong, because he always treated me kindly, but I never saw in my grandfather any evidence in his life that he was following Christ, even though he could quote a lot of scripture, even though he could sing all the songs in the hymnal. And to be honest with you, I'm sorry for him because I think his life and the life of his wife and his children could have been very different had he been a disciple. These disciples in Ephesus going to listen to Paul teach every day the greatest Christian mind that probably ever has been, but what they learned simply didn't get stored into their memory. What they learned began to be put into practice in their lives as they took the gospel and began to share it with everyone in the entire region. Look at verse 10 again with me. Let's, let's read that verse. It's up on the screen. Let's read that together. And this went on for two years. Are you reading with me? And this went on for two. Let's try it again. It's not up there. Trisha, get that up there. It's, not, it's gone. It's disappeared. I'll read it to you. I thought you had it. Y'all, I thought, these people are dumber than the people last week. <laughs> but we're, uh, God bless you. Bless your heart. Um, let me read it. This went on for two years so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. For two years, all the inhabitants, that's like saying, everybody in the state of North Carolina, look this way, everybody who lives from Manio to Murphy has heard the gospel because of the disciples at Nags Head Church. Is that a profound thing to you? That blows me away. Everybody heard the gospel. Someone called this, phrased this, a few decades ago is saturation evangelism. And the point is this. If I'm hearing, you're hearing this morning, I hope, if I'm being taught, if I'm even discussing it in my small group, but I'm not taking what I'm learning and getting it out to the world around me that doesn't know it, I am not a productive disciple. Plain and simple. There's some tough questions that I have to ask myself. When's the last time? When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Well, who was the last person who heard you explain how to receive Jesus as Savior? Who was the last one? When was the last time you invited someone to come to church with you and hear the gospel? Those, those are tough questions. And I know, but we just can't ignore them if we're growing and learning as disciples. How does that happen? Next point in your notes. When Jesus is magnified in my life as a Christian, sin is both confessed and abandoned. When Jesus is magnified, magnified means made large, sin is confessed and abandoned. Look at verse 11 with me. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. 
And Luke's seen a lot of miracles. He calls these extraordinary miracles. So that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin. Paul, again, was a leather worker, a tent maker, wore an apron when he worked. Those things that had touched his skin, they were brought to the sick and diseases left them. Evil spirits came out of them. Luke says it was incredible. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they traveled around, they were itinerant, they, were ex- they claimed to be able to cast out demons. They were Jewish, and he's going to identify them even more here for us. They attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Beforehand, they're not using Jesus' name. They're not believers in Jesus. They still aren't believers in Jesus, but they see the power that Paul has, who is a disciple of Jesus, and they said, let's try Jesus. Maybe that'll work. Saying, here's what they said, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Who were they? Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priests were doing this. And then Luke says, here's an example. The evil spirit answered them when they said that. The spirit spoke up, spoke through one of these men that was being possessed with an audible voice they could understand and said, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? This is one of those stories like we had one last week that I said, I I read it and I have to chuckle. I try to picture this in my mind. Then the man who had the evil spirit leaped on them, on these seven sons, overpowered them all. Kind of like a Jackie Chan movie here. Overpowered them all and prevailed against them. And here's the part I love. So that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. Can you imagine you're out walking down the street, all of a sudden the door flies open and seven naked guys chugging it for all they're worth. I would laugh. I would say, what in the world, man? What is, don't look, Ethel. You know, um, <laughs> but what happened as a result of that? This came known. The story spread to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And then fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus, not the name of Paul, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And look what happened. And many who had become believers, they believed in the name of Jesus. They became believers. They're now part of the Ephesian church, but they came confessing and disclosing their own practices, the things they were doing in their lives that they knew don't belong in the life of a Christian. While many who practice magic, sorcery kinds of things, collected their books, their magic books, and burned them in front of everyone. And so they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. It's hard to tell how much that was worth in those days, but 50,000 pieces of silver is a a chunk of change, wouldn't you say? That's a lot of money. They burned that up, and in this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. These sons, these priests' sons, were counterfeiters. And spiritual counterfeits really enter into a dangerous world. We can't see it in English, but the Greek here tells us something about who the demons knew. The demon said, Jesus I know. Gnosko is the Greek word. I know Jesus, 
in a personal, intimate way. Now, you have to think about it. Demons originally started out as angels in heaven, and they were cast out with Satan with, because of their rebellion. They had been in heaven with Jesus prior to the creation. They knew Jesus. They knew all about who he was and why he came. They shuddered the day on Easter Sunday when the stone rolled away and his body was not there because they knew he had won. We know Jesus. And then they say, and we know Paul. We know about Paul. Different Greek word, epistemi, means to know about, to understand. And we know who Paul is. But the demon did not know these seven sons. Why? Because they're phonies. They're pretenders. Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23 said, On the last day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, as we're standing in front of him for judgment, this is what Jesus is saying, at the judgment seat, many will say, Lord, Lord, we spoke for you, and through you we forced out demons. These guys will stand before Jesus and say, we proclaimed your name to cast out demons and did many miracles, and then I will tell them clearly, Jesus says, get away from me, you who do evil. I never knew you. What happened as a part of this supernatural display here? Luke says several things. First of all, he says fear or awe is the sense of the word. Whoa. Wow. I've never seen that before. Fear fell on them all. The name of Jesus was magnified. Notice it's not the name of Paul. Paul's the one that's, you know, he's the person that Jesus is using, but Paul wasn't being magnified. Jesus was being magnified. That's significant. Believers openly confessed their hidden sins. They brought this stuff out, and they built a fire, and they started throwing these books in there. This is not part of our life anymore. The tools of their sin were destroyed in public. And the end result is that the gospel grew in its impact and won over the culture. Now, we do have verse 20 we can read that last verse. Let's read that aloud. Read that with me. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. In this way, what way? There was awe. In this way, they destroyed what they had. In this way, their lives were changed. And the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. So as we wrap this up this morning, here's the big question of the morning for each one of us. And the question is this. I don't, I don't know who you are. Most of you, I don't know you. I'm glad you're here. But what steps do I need to take for the Lord's message to flourish and prevail in and around my life? What steps do I need to take? One of the hardest, if not the hardest aspect of pastoring a church, and maybe this isn't just pastors that struggle here. I think many of us who are believers and part of the body struggle. When we watch believers that we came to love and know, we watch them gradually fall away from the Lord and then the church. By the way, that's the order. They don't fall away from the church and then the Lord. They fall away from the Lord first. Why do you say that? I can let my relationship with Christ die off and continue at the same time to keep up the impression that all is well in my life because I still belong to a small group. I still serve on a team. 
I still attend church on occasion, but usually the fall is gradual, little by little. Back in the spring, Gail and I had a couple guys come to our house and clean out all the weeds and the vines and the, the trees that we never planted that were growing up in our azalea beds in front of our house. It had gone neglected for too long. So as a couple guys come out, and once they got done they, doing their magic, it was amazing. There was not a weed to be found. They trimmed the azaleas. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it was the same place. But guess what? That was back in March. Here it is, almost July. And the weeds and the vines and the unwanted vegetation are, can you believe, they're coming back. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I know that, especially when it comes to those kinds of things. But I've figured out, if you want the beds to be weed-free, I have to be intentional about that. It doesn't, I can't just go to bed at night and say, in the morning, we'd be gone. I have to be intentional about it. Something has to be done and done regularly. So just like that azalea bed can get cleared and look great, if there isn't an intentional pulling and cutting of the weeds, casting them out, that bed will be overcome by them in short order. There's a great need right now in our country. We're getting ready Friday to celebrate our nation's birth. Great need in, in America right now, I think greater than any time in my life, for spiritual revival to happen. We are literally in this country going to hell in a handbasket in a pace that is dizzying. I can't keep up with it. And part of the problem is us. A big part of the problem is the church. Clinging to lifestyles and habits that need to be brought, need to be cut, and need to be pulled out, need to be thrown into the fire and burned, destroyed. You see, when I'm still, when you're still doing the same things that we did before we met Christ, those things that actually oppose Christ, we are negating any witness, any impact that we might have on our culture. We're certainly not growing and becoming like Christ. Sometimes, a bonfire is needed. Would you bow with me for prayer? Is there something in your life that doesn't belong, that you're holding on to? And maybe even your God help you displaying openly as if it's all right when you know the word of God says, no, don't do that, don't think that, don't go there, don't practice that. Maybe today is bonfire day for you. Father, would you take your word and may your spirit who indwells us as believers change us this morning into what you want us to be. Starts on the inside, then it comes out. I wonder if we went out, there's a fire pit out in our front yard here at the church, if we just all went out there and we had things to toss in to a fire and Say, we're rid of this, God. What habits, what worldviews, what vocabularies, what attitudes, what relationships would you need to pull out and toss in the fire, admitting, God, these are, these are sinful, these are things I don't need, they need to be destroyed.
What is it on your computer? What is it in your closet, your cabinet? That needs to be thrown into the fire so that you can walk away from it and Christ be magnified in your life. Let me ask you to keep in mind these things might be costly to burn up. The cost might be financial, it might be social, it might cost you your job, it could cost you your family if you abandon the things of the world that are pulling you away from Christ. But the gain far outweighs the lost. I'm going to pray for you. If you need to speak to someone and ask for prayer, Pastor Steve, could you come and be up front? He's going to be up here. I'll be at the Welcome Center. But don't walk out hanging on to something that needs to be abandoned, needs to be destroyed. Take your word, God, in our lives today. We need its truth. We need your spirit to take these things in me and convict me of what does not belong and give me, Father, the resolve to do what these people did and throw them into the fire and be free from them. That this world around us, the gospel, the message of the Lord might flourish all around us here at Nags Head and wherever we're from. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.